Welcome to Jaipur Bites, the JLF podcast. I'm your host, Laksh Datta. This episode is the audio version of a live online session from JLF Colorado 2020. The Life and Death of Democracy. Ajum H. Wingo, Christoph Jafferlot, Gideon Levy, Makarand Arparanjapi, and Mukulika Banerjee in conversation with Milan Veshnav. Good afternoon, good evening, good night to all of my um, panelists across the world. Uh, let me just jump right into it uh, and try to frame this discussion going forward. You know, every year the US-based NGO Freedom House issues a report on the state of global democracy. And if you look at its most recent 2020 edition, uh, Freedom House finds that, you know, 2019 was the 14th consecutive year of decline in global freedom. Uh, according to their data, 64 countries around the world experienced deterioration in their political rights and civil liberties, while uh, just 37 experienced improvements. Uh, the interesting twist, I think, if you look around and read the kind of scholarship and commentariat is that many of the threats to democracy seem to emanate from within. So if you take the, the scholar Francis Fukuyama he had a recent piece in the journal American Purpose I just like to quote from to kind of kick off our discussion in which he writes, quote, democracy itself is being challenged by authoritarian states like Russia and China that manipulate or dispense with free and fair elections. But the more insidious threat arises from populists within existing liberal democracies who are using the legitimacy they gain through their electoral mandates to challenge or undermine liberal institutions. Adume, let me start this conversation by, by turning to you. Uh, you have studied uh, liberal democracy for quite some time. As you stand back and look at the emerging global landscape, what is your assessment of the state of global democracy? And to what extent do you believe that these rather gloomy evaluations are warranted? Thank you very much, Melan, and I'm honored to be among these uh, wonderful scholars. My assessment, <clears throat> let me start with my assessment is that democracy is alive, is well, and is thriving <clears throat> around the world. Let me, let me say what I mean by democracy here. And I'm going to go with the classical meaning of democracy, which means rule of the people or rule by the people. The word is Greek in origin. Uh, them means people. Oh, we can uh, take that to mean of. And the crazy, uh, crazy is rule or government. Combined, it means rule of or by the people. Abraham Lincoln defined it succinctly and very simply and clearly. Government of the people, for the people, by the people. 
In fact, the ancient Athenians took this rule by the people almost literally. And the, the process uh, and the process of choosing leaders was by was by by lottery, which means anyone and everyone could rule. Back then, even nowadays, the canonical process was by election, is by election, and hence we talk of electoral democracy. That is choosing leaders by a process of election. If this is the case, then democracy is alive, it is well, and is thriving around the world. Nowadays, democracy is a badge of honor that is worn by nearly all countries in the developing world. This brand is wonderful because it can be televised for all to see. And Western powers, they can force a country in the developed world to have an election. Almost all African countries hold parliamentary and presidential elections. Government produced by democracy may be inefficient, may be corrupt, irresponsible, dominated by special interests, incapable of adopting policies demanded by the public. These qualities make such a government undesirable that they do not make it undemocratic. Multi-party, competitive, open, free, and fair election is all that there is to it. Farid Zakaria is very clear about this. Yet, democracy hasn't delivered peace, prosperity, and happiness for the people of Africa, South America, India, and many countries in the developing world. If anything, it has delivered the reverse. Western governments force uh, democracy into African countries in good faith. And I mean it, they force it in good faith. They wanted to make Africa and many developing countries in their image. Presumably, they wanted African countries to be thriving like them. They want democratic government that protect individuals' natural rights, among which are the right to life, to liberty, happiness, prosperity, free enterprise, and dignity. They also want democratic government to deliver a bunch of freedoms, such as the freedom of speech, freedom of movement, assembly, worship, freedom of love, and more pivotally, the freedom to live one's life, one's way celebrated by the famous American uh, blues singer, Frank Sinatra in his lyric, I did it my way. Other good thing they want, democratic government to produce are, is constitutionalism as an intricate, creative, and imaginative system of division of power, checks and balances, the rule of law, impartial judiciary, impartial judges, independent, uh, uh, independent media, independent universities, all to starve dictatorship and ensure the sovereignty 
of the powerless. These are good things. They are good things. To the extent that Western government believe in their hearts of hearts, in their minds of minds, that these good things can be delivered by mere electoral democracy. By pure democracy, it means they do not really understand their own source of individual flourishing. The problem is not in democracy. Democracy is fine. The problem lies elsewhere. Let me leave you with this. Democracy in contemporary Western world and its outposts came in care of liberal constitutionalism. While democracy in Africa, Latin America, India, and other developing countries came in care of democracy. It seems that the problem of the 21st century for the developing world is how to get democracy to deliver liberal constitutionalism. This, I will assure you, is an extraordinarily difficult thing to accomplish because as the saying goes among the people of Nso in Cameroon, who sired me, God created death and death killed God. I will assure you that democracy will kill democracy because there is nothing standing in between the hyper ambitious democratic leaders and their restless masses. And they may close uh, this struggle by, say, by, by, by saying that I would rather live in a democratic government full of liberal constitutional senses surrounding me, which even an unhinged tyrant or a moron can rule because sooner or later one will. Thank you. Thank you very much, Jume, for uh, taking us back all the way to the ancient Greeks and 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 bringing bringing the conversation to the present day. Let me just build on on you know one of your insights and and ask Makaran to to jump in. You know, Jume has helped us define democracy uh, in a classical sense. One of the central components, obviously, is the ability of the citizenry to define and choose its leadership. Now we have just witnessed two very large elections, of course, the US presidential election uh, and a regional election in the North Indian state of Bihar. Uh, regional elections typically don't get much mention around the world, but when you have a state that's over 110 million people, as Bihar is, it seems to me that it's worth talking about. So Makaran, the question to you is, as you reflect on the two outcomes and the processes underlying these two large elections, how do they help inform your views on the health of global democracy? Thank you, Milan. It's wonderful to be on this panel. I think that one of the things that these two elections have demonstrated is the vibrancy and viability of global democracies. And, uh, you know, when we use the word democracy, uh, we generally know what it means, but the variety within democracies is so stupendous that uh, you can't... Uh, you know, sort of tar all democracies with one brush, as it were, or even elevate them uh, in the same fashion. I mean, Turkey is a democracy, uh, so is Russia to some extent, and uh, so are Malaysia, Indonesia, India, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, several countries in Africa, like South Africa, 
and so on. So there's a huge variety of countries and then smaller countries where democracy is, is uh, uh, really, I mean, so much in play that uh, the citizens stand up and vote whether the uh, power line should come through their canton uh, or whether there should be, uh, you know, uh, roofs over a certain height and so forth. So I think one of the things that makes democracies so attractive, so erotic, if I might say so, despite all their uh, fissures and divisions and, you know, how fraught they are, is precisely this, uh, this inability to contain all of them in one box. And before I come to the US and Bihar, for a moment, I thought of reflecting on, on uh, the COVID pandemic, you know, and we've seen how an authoritarian country like China supposedly has had less than 5,000 deaths, whereas the United States has had over 200,000 in India, over 100,000. Yet, I don't know anybody in India or the United States who would rather live in China or be, you know, governed by a system such as China. So, despite the paradox that authoritarian societies seem to take care of pandemics better than messy, democratic, chaotic societies, such authoritarian states and societies are not attractive, really. So, what I'm trying to say is that democracy is as much uh, an instinct it's as much a way of living as it is a set of rules and regulations and you know constitutionality governmentality i think i think it's it's uh, it's really a way in which people have been used to express themselves you know politically socially culturally now coming to the united states the most divided election that i've ever seen i mean i thought trump versus hillary clinton was bad enough i was observing that uh, from, albeit from a distance. In fact, I was in Brazil when those debates and, uh, and the voting was going on. So it gave me a very interesting uh, view on it. In fact, I was in the Amazon, you know, in Manaus, which is a very interesting part of the world. And Brazil is also such a vibrant democracy, you know, uh, to give another example. So all these societies, uh, large and small, are, despite their divisions, and people keep complaining, you know, these are all criticism surplus societies. Everybody vents about how bad things are. And yet, nobody would exchange them for authoritarian society. So the US elections were the most divided that I've ever seen. And yet there's so much peace now that we have a president-elect. And uh, despite uh, Trump going, uh, you know, publicly challenging some of the counts and so forth, I think the transition isn't going to be as fraught as we had expected. Now, coming to Bihar, as you said, it's a very uh, interesting election because for the first time, uh, you've got a party such as Majlis Ittihadul Muslimin winning five seats. You've got CPINL, Marxist Leninist Liberation, which is a very far left party, radical, you know, believe in, earlier they used to believe in armed struggle and overthrow of the state. They've got 12 seats. It's not CPI, CPM, which is winning. So on the one hand, you've got this unexpected uh, fringe that is coming up. And the other, on the other hand, the NDA juggernaut, especially the Modi magic, seems to have continued. I, I think uh, the constituencies where Modi campaigned were the ones where BJP did really well. And uh, JDU is another paradox. They've lost so many seats. And yet Nitish is the longest serving 
chief minister of Bihar over 14 years has been today he's been sworn in the seventh time the fourth time consecutively so what I'm trying to say really is that despite uh, you know all these divisions and threats and criticisms from within dangers from within as you mentioned the report I think democracies are alive and thriving and uh, and I think they're going to give all these other other types of societies a run for the money in fact we see that China is becoming more and more powerful whenever they ease up regulations you've got a flight of millionaires and billionaires a flight of capital uh, and so on which shows that uh, those systems aren't all that attractive even if they seem to be thank you very much Makarand. uh Muklika, let me let me turn to you next um, and you know we have an a, a overabundance of expertise on India in this panel. So let me let me just dive a little bit into the Indian experience. You know, for many years, you have been investigating various notions of popular representation in India. I know you have a particular interest in its Republican foundations. I'm wondering, how do you conceptualize India's democratic identity today in the year 2020? And what, if anything, to your mind has changed uh, in either its form or its function? It's, um, it, thank you, Milan, for that question. And it's interesting listening to Makaran before me um, that the world's population now has to face uh, a choice between death and authoritarianism. <laughs> uh, or mismanagement of pandemics and, and lockdowns at four hours notice or authoritarianism. I think we can do better than that, I would hope. Um, it's, it's interesting that the number of books that have come out in the last 12 months on uh, hailing the death of democracy, which is why I suppose we are talking about the life and death of democracy. And as you said, Milan, in your opening remarks that uh, democracy's death is likely to come from within and, and from uh, not from military coups, but from uh, electoral authoritarianism or other forms of democratic forms that, uh, in fact, uh, subvert its, uh, its essence. So the way I look at it, I think, you know, any, democr any democratic form has two aspects to it. There's the institutional democracy and there is democratic culture, right? So you need both, uh, you need both institutions and you need culture. Now in India, the trajectory, it's, it's very interesting that India's definition as a country is of a sovereign democratic republic. And this was actually, you know, this didn't, this had some dispute around it. Initially, the formulation was that it was an independent sovereign republic. And Ambedkar, as we know, uh, chair of the drafting committee of the Indian constitution and, and a brilliant lawyer and scholar himself insisted and pushed back against others and said, no, we must have the words democracy and republic. Now, what does that mean? And I think, you know, all I'll say is, is really to unpack these two things. So I think when we talk about democracy and, and assess it, we must also think about the Republic. And in the US elections, you'll remember very early on, as it seemed clear very quickly that Trump was not going to accept the electoral verdict, 
the way journalists immediately commented on it was to say the republic is under threat. So the word republic seems to come up at, at moments where uh, people feel that even while you have the trappings of a democracy, like an election, if, you're, if you assault something very fundamental, then the republic is appealed to. So in India, in December, when we had countrywide protests, for instance, against laws that had been passed, the CAA, which a number of people felt were anti-constitutional, unconstitutional, their slogan was reclaim the republic. So the word republic shows up in, in many ways. So how does one separate these two things? I think under uh, institutional democracy, you get what would be called political democracy, which defines the relationship between citizens and the state. So it's that vertical relationship that you choose your leaders. Uh, you can have the values of freedom, equality, justice, one person, one vote, uh, what we would call uh, a bundle of, of rights and entitlements under the rubric of formal citizenship. Uh, based on this principle, as Ajume was saying at the beginning, of political equality. It's a one person, one vote. That's how you see it. But democracy is not just this, as we know. Democracy is also about democratic cultures, about creating uh, both political democracy, but also under democratic cultures, we need economic and social democracy. It's about the relationship between citizens, not just between citizen and the state. And if freedom, equality, and justice are the words, the preamble in the Indian constitution, at least to define that, the word to define this Republican, and here Republican with a small r, this has nothing to do with the US political party. This is about Republican values, uh, is about horizontal solidarities. And so the word in the Indian constitution is fraternity, right? So, we don't think about fraternity enough. How do you create a, a society based on fraternity? And in India, this was a real challenge because of course, India is a, a deeply divided society by caste, by discrimination on a number of factors. And therefore the democratic aspiration was actually to reimagine society, not just that political equality, that every person had an equal vote, which was radical enough. I've celebrated Indian elections for many years, but uh, that each vote will also have the same value. And this is what Ambedkar was pushing uh, people to think. So I think what has happened, you know, at the moment in, in various countries that we are watching is that the one takeaway from the US elections is how utterly, um, in need of reform the electoral system itself is. You know, as, as some Democrats have said, there are no red states, there are voter suppressed states. There is voter suppression, there is an electoral system that doesn't work, that, uh, that are, there is gerrymandering. There's lots of different problems with the electoral system itself, which is, uh, there's an institutional failure. But, and I'll leave Christoph to talk about institutional problems in India. I know that that's what he's been writing about. But what we have seen is really that the republicanism, the, the, the need for citizens to remain active citizens, to hold democratic leaders to account is something that has declined. And therefore you cannot have 
real democracy, a flourishing democracy, without that kind of active citizenship. Thanks. Thank you, Mukika. Uh, Christoph, let me turn to you. I think this is a nice segue. You know, uh, the way in which political scientists have conceptualized Indian democracy, particularly in recent years, has been to say that, yes, it's true that when the electoral spotlight is on, the vibrancy of democracy is quite apparent, right? We are seeing record voter turnouts at the national level. We are seeing women Finally, all of these decades later, outpacing men in terms of their rates of voter turnout. Uh, we describe elections not as contesting elections in India, but fighting them, right, because of their hyper-competitive nature. All of that is true, and yet many people believe it's really democracy between elections that is the sore point, uh, where the weaknesses of, of democratic structures in India seem to be the most apparent. Now, you have written a lot about about institutions, about fundamental freedoms. What's your take on this kind of Janus faced nature of Indian democracy? Thank you. Thank you, Milan. And um, I would like to build indeed on, on, on your question as well as on your opening remarks, because I think you made a very important point when you refer to the uh, perversiveness of populism. And of course, the list of countries with national populist leaders is now very long. Uh, Donald Trump may be out, but Erdogan is still around. Uh, Bolsonaro is there. Uh, and of course, Narendra Modi. National populists um, are par excellence uh, authoritarian personalities because populism is conducive to authoritarianism. Simply because the populist leader claims that he embodies the nation. I am the nation, you know, recently, Otto Chatterjee wrote a book, I am the people. That's exactly what the populist says. There is no need for an opposition. No, the opposition is redundant. Congress Mukta Bharat is the national, the natural uh, conclusion of a populist uh, discourse. And of course, if you are in the opposition, you are illegitimate, you become anti-national. And therefore, uh, that's exactly what I show in my book on the emergency, Indira Gandhi's discourse vis-a-vis -vis the opposition was exactly the same. You are anti-national. There is no reason why you should be there when I am the people and I embody the people. So the main question for me when you say that is, how does this authoritarianism take shape? And our democracy like India that had some robust institutions, we thought, is turning in this direction. Well, I will use, uh, uh, since you invited me to do some political science, uh, well, very well-known definitions of very well-known authors. You know, Juan Linz remains the main reference for a definition of what is authoritarianism. And he is a very, he gives a very simple uh, definition in a book, by the way, published in Boulder <laughs> in 2000. Well, Authoritarianism finds expression in decline of pluralism. It's not totalitarianism. There is some pluralism, but it is limited. How do you limit pluralism? Some governments will do it by making elections illegal or redundant or a farce. So China is certainly not 
an electoral authoritarian regime. But others retain elections. And in spite of that, make sure that they are, if you want, competitive authoritarian regimes or electoral authoritarian regimes. There is no contradiction there uh, to some extent. And in fact, what's, that's, that's what Andreas Schedler uh, in, in a very interesting book on electoral uh, authoritarianism shows. Uh, as he says, you know, the, the uh, democratic substance of democracy goes in this context because the formation of popular preferences uh, is distorted. There is a distortion. And I'd like to, to support my claim by uh, referring to precise facts. I think we can't, we can't go on with platitudes only. We need to give some concrete elements for fleshing out claims like, like this one. And I would just list few developments uh, that have made uh, Indian democracy uh, less democratic, so to speak, uh, over the last few years. Well, first of all, something you know very well, uh, Milan, money matters more and more in electoral politics in India. And that makes competition uneven. There is a bias. When you have billions of dollars to saturate the public space, of course, you have an advantage and uh, this advantage is used most of the time uh, by using social media, by using the media, well, the TV channels in particular. So I just want to give a single figure, the Association for Democratic Reforms, that is a perfectly uh, decent organization, <laughs> to say the least, declares that 80% of the total income of national parties from unknown sources and that's a lot, was cornered by, by BGP, 80%. This income of BGP forms more than four times the aggregate of income from unknown sources declared by the other five national parties. In which country do you see fair competition at the time of election when the ruling party has four more times, four times more, money than the others. And that is possible because of a law that you know very well, Electoral Bonds Act, making it possible for parties not to declare the sources of their income. And this is a recipe, as Mr. Qureshi, the former uh, chief election commissioner says, for crony capitalism. So the nexus, you can say, of business and politics is at its best. And this is certainly not an anti-elitist and pro-democratic a development. I've mentioned the media just a couple of figures as well. During the last election, if, if you look at what Broadcast Audience Research Council, BARC, said about the Indie channels, only the Indie channels, only between April 2nd and April 28th, Mr. Nandra Modi was on prime time for 722 hours. Rahul Gandhi for 251 hours. No debate between the two contenders. No press conference worth that name. So the media is not a place where you can challenge, debate. If you don't have debate during an election campaign, when do you have a debate? Third and more, I would say, more surprisingly, 
the judiciary that used to be the last bastion for the rule of law has developed a non-confrontationist attitude that found expression in three domains. First, you have this strange development that bills that have no financial dimension are accepted as money bills. How can the other bill be a money bill? The implications of other bill are so huge for privacy, for individual freedom. There must be a debate. There is no debate when you have a money bill. And that's precisely why the Speaker of the Lok Sabha considered it as a money bill, because you don't need the Rajya Sabha, the upper house, uh, to, to, be, to be consulted. Secondly, you see the Supreme Court of India now uh, waiting for months, if not years, before looking at issues, looking at petitions. The abolition of Article 370 was on August 5, 2019. We are in late or mid-November 2020, and that has not been looked at yet. Same with the CAA. They just sit on the uh, petitions. And last but not least, you see the Collegium of Judges not opposing transfer and appointments of judges anymore. There was a, there was a kind of a battle after 2014, 2015, they have given up. Last but not least, Parliament. India is supposed to be a parliamentary democracy. Parliament should be key. Parliament should be the place where debates take place. And never before Narendra Modi as an Indian Prime Minister neglecting Parliament so constantly. You know, we've made some calculation with uh, one of my uh, students and we've come to the conclusion that he spoke 3.6 times a year in Parliament as an average. Atal Biri Vajpayee used to speak 16.7 times a year as an average in the same six years of, of the uh, government of Atal Biri Vajpayee. Atal Biri Vajpayee was a parliamentarian and parliament was a place for debates. So now it's not a place for debate, it's not even a place for vote. You know, the last vote uh, that should have take place, should have taken place on the Farmers Produce Trade and Commerce Bill uh, was not, uh, was passed without a, a division. Uh, and, and that's, uh, I'm sure you remember, one of the things that uh, made Parliament uh, a kind of battleground uh, during the last parliamentary session. Uh, on the top of it, uh, because of uh, the pandemic, Christian hours were cancelled. So the last time I can remember when question hours were cancelled was during the emergency precisely, when question hours were suspended. And uh, no question hours mean one-way traffic communication again. You don't have press conference, you don't have debates, you don't have question hours. What's left for uh, deliberation? Um, I thought Mukulika would have spoken about the Asian Commission of India, so uh, I'll be happy to do it uh, in the Q&A if, if you want, but I will not do it now. Uh, I, I have also no time to say anything about the uh, way the RTI Act has been amended. The RTI Act was definitely uh, one of the achievements uh, of the previous government, and it has been largely emptied out from the inside. Uh, so the list can be longer, but you see my concern 
Uh, as uh, Levitsky and Ziblatt says, and as Mokulika has just uh, echoed, democracy doesn't die because of any military coup these days. Democracy dies because gradually institutions are eroded and the way uh, checks and balances are eroded sometimes reach a point of no return and this is when authoritarianism becomes the order of the day. Thank you, Christophe. Uh, let me uh, come to Gideon now uh, to talk about a different part of the world where in some sense we are seeing uh, uh, a, a tremendous amount of political contestation. Gideon, let me uh, ask you about how the democratic balance appears to you sitting in Israel. And I want to motivate it by referring to a book that was published by Noah Feldman on the Arab winter. Uh, and Noah's argument is that we all know the tragic outcome of the Arab Spring. That does not disguise its inherent worth. Uh, people whose political lives had been determined elsewhere uh, tried and fought for a brief time succeeded in trying to make politics for themselves. Now, that did not result in the kind of constitutional flourishing that we would have hoped to have seen in the Arab world, but uh, that doesn't mean that the effort didn't matter. So I'm wondering if you could kind of give us a sense of where you think this thrust of Arab democracy lies today. Thank you, Milan. Uh, I think the study of Israel is, uh, will give another dimension to the whole discussion about democracy and Israel in the context of the Middle East. Israel is perceived as the only democracy in the Middle East. It is always presented as the a presenter of Western values in the Middle East. And indeed, Israel is a democracy for its Jewish citizens, a liberal democracy with all kinds of freedoms and rights. Recently, we talk a lot about Israel's democracy because there are some cracks, because in the list of uh, populistic uh, leaders, you forgot one, and this was obviously Benjamin Netanyahu, our Benjamin Netanyahu. Don't forget him, please, in this respectable list. And under, after 14 years or 13 years that he's in power, we see the cracks that Christophe just spoke about them right now. But I want to raise another question, another challenge, which is much more deep, which is much deeper. Can Israel be perceived or defined as a democracy when only part of its inhabitants have democracy. Does it exist half a democracy? Does it exist democracy only for one people who lives under the same government and no democracy for the others? Can we still call it a democracy? And I, I repeat, for us Israeli, Jewish Israelis, for sure, we really gain all the rights in the world until now, at least until now. I don't take it for granted, but until now, all our freedoms are there. But 20 minutes away from my home, half an hour away from my home, there is a different reality. And this reality is run by the very same Israel. 
So how can we define a democracy? Israel is maybe the only state in the world which contains three regimes. I don't know another example. You experts maybe know another example of one state with three regimes. So we have this liberal democracy for its Jewish citizens. We have a very discriminative democracy for its Arab or Palestinian citizens. They gain all the former rights, but they are deeply discriminated almost in any field that you can imagine yourself. But that's just part of the picture because there are another four and a half, almost five million people who live under Israel's rule and have no rights whatsoever. Not only they don't have rights, the Palestinians in the occupied territories are maybe, and again, if my colleagues, the experts, can recall another example, I will be happy to hear. The Palestinians who live in the West Bank and Gaza are the only people in the world who are not citizens of any state in the world unprecedented people who have no citizenship whatsoever so we don't even talk about democracy we talk even about citizenship which is even less than democracy i mean you can be a citizen of, of a dictatorship so we have this third regime of israel which let me say frankly it is one of the most brutal totalitarian violent, aggressive dictatorship in the world today. And I know what I say because the military government or the military governing of the occupied territories is very totalitarian, very brutal, and, 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 and is a dictatorship. You cannot define it just as a dictatorship. Now, the Israelis like to see themselves as living in this villa in the jungle, as one of our prime ministers uh, defined it once. Yeah, we are the villa, obviously, and all around us, you refer to the Arab Spring or to the Arab winter, winter or summer or, or spring, we are surrounded by non-democratic nations and we are this villa which is the, the lighthouse of, of justice and equality surrendered by those uh, 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 dictatorship and primitive peoples. This is obviously one of the biggest lies because as I can see it, I guess it will be very hard to argue you can't be half pregnant. Either you are pregnant or you are not pregnant. And you can't be half a democracy. Either you are a democracy or you are not a democracy. And the key question is equality. Do all the people under the same rule gain the same rights? If the answer is yes, you are a democracy. If the answer is no, you are not a democracy and you cannot be perceived in the democracy. I've been today, I just came back now from the Jordan Valley, which is part of the occupied territories. In the Jordan Valley, you can see two villages, one next to the other. One village have all the resources and all the rights. 
freedom of movement, participating in the elections, freedom of speech, everything. And the village next to it, few hundred meters, don't gain any rights whatsoever. No freedom of movement, no, no citizenship, no freedom of speech, uh, arrests without trials, you name it. Can we call this a democracy? So my challenge to all of you is, can we, and, and Israel is a special case. I mean, there are not many examples like this, but the challenge is really not only to judge a regime according to the formalities and not only to judge a state only according to its relationship toward its citizens, but in cases in which there is a state which rules millions of non-citizens without any rights, can you still call it a democracy? And my answer is obviously, at least about my country, Israel, that this lie, this, this um, legend that Israel is a democracy must be challenged once and for all. And my last sentence, for many years, Israel claimed that the occupation is temporary. And therefore, it could be defined as a democracy because there are democracies who have some military occupation out of a war, out of some circumstances. And the idea is that those territories will gain freedom sooner or later. But after 53 years of occupation, nobody can take it seriously anymore that this is temporary. It's not temporary. Israel never had the intention and doesn't have the intention to put the end to the occupation. And if so, Israel cannot be perceived as a democracy until it will declare equal rights for everybody, one person, one vote. And we are very far from there. Thank you. Thank you, Gideon, very much. Um, so we only have about 15 minutes left. And in the spirit of trying to mix it up and, um, and engage all of you in a discussion, let me start by tossing out a question. But then, you know, please, if you could kind of keep your responses short, we'll try to encompass as many different views as we as we can. Ajume, let me let me go back to where you began. Uh, you, you mounted a very robust defense of the continuing vibrancy of democracy. But you had one interesting line towards the end of your remarks in which you said there are many problems uh, uh, in the world, but the, in, including in democratic countries, but the problem is not with democracy. The problem lies elsewhere. And I'm wondering if you could give us an indication of what you think that elsewhere might be. Wonderful. <clears throat> uh, thank you. Uh, let me just say, of America, that what is distinctive about American system is how undemocratic it is. America is a quasi, it is a, a quasi or almost para-democratic state. It is not purely democratic state. And, and, and why? Because of uh, what uh, what uh, 
Mokuita and uh, and uh, Macron has uh, put forward because, as I said, uh, democracy in the Western world today, I'm talking about modern democracy, started with liberal constitutionalism. And only later on did they adopt democracy. So liberal constitutionalism is very important. In fact, is what Professor Levy is talking about here that is lacking. It is not democracy. So what is lacking is this liberal constitutionalism. America has it very well. Uh, there, is, um, uh, there is a view that politics is the greatest reflection on human nature. And the American constitution is based on a pessimistic view of human nature. And James Madison was the one who said, if men were angels, there will be no, government will not be necessary. So uh, 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 the, the, French, the French revolution was based on an optimistic view of human being. Therefore, they pull out the institutions and all the institution and everything in between so that you have people and the state. So you have a centralized state. That is a bad thing. And in fact, the idea that the United States is not pure democracy is a very good thing indeed. And so what is lacking is this liberal constitutionalism, the guarantee of the right of the minority. Again, going to Professor Levy, the guarantee of the right of the individual, the guarantee of, uh, of the continuation of your life, even when things are shaky. So to say that America is not doing well democratically, is like, it's like a kid, you know, who grew up looking at their father as a god. And then later on, discover their foible and say, oh, you are lying to me. All democracies, they always, they've always been corruption, wood rigging, voter suppression, multiple voting, it might be this time, it has to be overwhelming. It has to be overwhelming to cut the perception of people. But if it is not, it's fine. We are not angels, we are human beings. And as I said, what we need is this liberal constitutionalism. And that's the problem of the 21st century for African democracy, for India, for uh, Israel as Professor Levy is, uh, is putting it here. So Makaran, let me, let me just kind of use this as a bridge to connect to something you talked about, which was, I think, a, a defense of sort of this, you know, despite a lot of the doom and gloom you, one might hear, underlying robustness of democratic institutions and practices, both in my own country where I sit right now in the United States and as well as in yours in India. Um, but I wonder whether or not you think that there is a decoupling going on, that is the decoupling of electoral institutional democracy from kind of liberalism and liberal constitutionalism, in which uh, once you scratch below the surface, you find that many of the liberal freedoms that both of our countries have enjoyed seem to be uh, uh, dissipating. Absolutely. But, you know, I've found that some of the most illiberal people are liberals, you know, the most intolerant, the most uh, despotic, the most uh, 
should I say, uh, you know, unopened to views that are contrary to theirs. But I want to go back to what Gideon and Christoph said for a moment. I think that the problem is we've got into this enunciatory model of democracy where we've got these precepts and then we say, oh, this is not democratic, this is not democratic, this is not democratic. So going away from that, I've been trying to emphasize that democracy is an instinct, it's a performative and it's an energy. And of course, no democracy is perfect. And, you know, I'm not holding a flag for Israel, but I guess the, one of the difficult choices for Israel is survival, in fact, you know, uh, where, you know, only recently states in the region have begun to accept Israel, UAE, for example, which I think is a very good thing. Speaking of UAE, they've now, uh, you know, passed a new law where cohabitation, consensual co cohabitation of non-married people is fine. Now, what I'm trying to say is that when uh, these liberal uh, gestures are made, you see, even in constitutional monarchies and in non-democratic societies, they become more erotic, they become more attractive. Whereas Turkey, which was, I thought earlier, you know, quite an open society, once you've got the Hagia Sophia being turned into a mosque once again, that's sending out a completely different message. So coming to India, I'm, I'm very aware of some of the things that people have been talking about, but I think cancel culture and, you know, Shaheen Bagh, where they occupied a place, to me was also not democratic, frankly. But the point is, I agree that institutional decay and decline is a terrible thing, especially, you know, sedition laws, people being locked up. And for me, it's not just the laws, it's the politics, you know. It's the politics that made, you know, Arnab go to jail, you know, because the case that he was booked under was, was very old, was a couple of years old. They suddenly woke up. So the point is, whether it's Maharashtra or UP, or, or a friend of mine was thrown into jail for saying something about the Konark temple, you see, in Orissa. Now, for me, that is ridiculous. And if you're a comedian, you make fun of a leader, you go to jail. I think that's terrible for me. So, so for me, the way the politicians are dominating every aspect of life, for me, that is dangerous because Swaraj means that it's the people who are empowered, you see, not, not politicians. And institutional decline, I saw it in the emergency. I saw what Indira Gandhi did. This is not new. And let's make a distinction between populism and popularity, okay? Look, Modi is popular. You, he may be populist, but he's also terribly popular, uh, unlike many other so-called populist leaders. And, and isn't it Laklav who said that, that, uh, that populism is a way to garner the energy of the people? It's liberated. Look at Bihar. Lalu Prasad Yadav is in jail and his son won 75 seats. So you, need, so you see India, you have the carnivalesque, you know, which is politics. That is, people love it. And you've got somebody in jail and yet that family gets 75 seats. And if something happens to this NDA alliance, who knows, he may even come to power. So I think that the internal critique of democracy is very important. I completely support it. We should keep asking these kinds of questions. But I'm completely... Uh, you see, against this doom and gloom, because I think that it's an instinct. I think it can right itself. 
And uh, I think that institutions which have been uh, you see, corrupted or undermined can turn robust again, you see, depending uh, on the climate, depending on, uh, on uh, the change that happens. And I'm, I'm very upbeat about uh, Indian democracy. I just wanted to mention one little thing. You know, you, 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 you just look at Indian families, you know, large families, and they'll say, now this is a little bit before COVID, okay, but they're going out to dinner and, and people say, where do you want to eat? And one bunch says, oh, we want to go to Punjabi. So another one says Chinese. And you know what happens? They vote. So the instinct to vote is so deeply entrenched. People vote on all kinds of little things, you know, I mean, and therefore, and therefore I think that, uh, you know, as, as we come out of the pandemic, I think that free societies, even quasi-democratic societies, the societies which have a semblance of people's power are going to get more and more attractive. And the winds of change are blowing over the Arab world. And I think that uh, uh, the crisis of Islam that Macron talked about and which got him trolled all over shows us simply that uh, determined minorities are as great a threat uh, to democratic and free societies as our, as our majorities, you know. So I think, I think we have to keep our eyes and ears open. And I think that uh, in the times to come, uh, we, I, I think the world is going to make crucial choices where, where freedom and openness are going to have a premium. And it's not just going to be about uh, safeguarding, uh, you know, livelihoods, but it's also about the choices that people have. And I think democracies give people many more choices than, than authoritarian societies do. Thank you. So, so we have about five more minutes. Gideon, let me just come to you before I turn to Mukalika and Christoph very quickly, because both the Middle East and Israel have, have now come up several times. I, I want to kind of link developments in Israel with the global perspective. You know, many people have argued these past four years that the uh, dominance and the presence of Donald Trump has essentially given a kind of green light or created permissive environment for all kinds of populist actors who are willing to engage in nefarious or illiberal activity to flourish. Do you anticipate any change in the developments in Israel or in the Middle East uh, on account of the change in administration and the global environment, thanks to Trump's perhaps temporary, we don't know yet, uh, stepping aside? Uh, we have to separate between wishful thinking and, uh, and uh, realistic thinking. I don't think that uh, the day that Donald Trump will leave the White House, the next day there will be light shining over the Middle East and over the world, only because Donald Trump uh, left. But as you defined it very well, the presence of Donald Trump in the White House and this kind of leadership or regime had a major influence, I think, maybe globally, but for sure in Israel, because it was a rare meeting between two leaders who come more or less from the same school, the same school of thought, the same school of feeling themselves as victims of the old system, victims of liberalism, 
victims of universal values, and here they come on behalf of nationalistic ideas, populistic ideas, both of them with the same uh, uh, victimization. I think that psychologically, they, they share much more than we think. Obviously, uh, Netanyahu is much more educated and sophisticated and knowledgeable than Donald Trump, but still they share ve many values together. And maybe Modi should be uh, 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 added to this list because Netanyahu always is so proud of his uh, friend, Prime Minister Modi. Now, once Donald Trump leaves, first of all, let's remember that we are not going to the other pole. Milan. It's not like the liberals, the, the, even the leftists, God forbid, are taking over. Uh, Biden stands for a conservative left or a conservative liberalism. We didn't go all the way to the other pole. And therefore, I think we will get back maybe to normality. Uh, but if we speak about Israel, at least, Yes, Netanyahu will have to be more careful, but I must remind you that Netanyahu was quite powerful under eight years of Barack Obama, who couldn't stand him, who was a real liberal, at least at his rhetorics. And Netanyahu did very well, and the occupation did very well, and democracy didn't do so well. So yes, it will be better days, but don't expect a revolution after the 20th of January. Uh, Muklika, Christoph, let me turn to you next. Uh, and it'll probably have to be the last word given our timing. Muklika, I'm sure there are many things you want to react to. Let me just give plant one thought, which is uh, you have studied voting for much of your adult life. And one of the observations that many people have made, not just about India, but in India as well, is that there seems to be a decoupling of the politics of accountability from people's everyday electoral practice. So that people are voting in very many things, but not necessarily in the kind of retrospective, you see is the ledger, has, has, is my standing better than it was four years ago, five years ago? If so, I, I vote for the incumbent. If not, I, I, I kick them out. What's your sense on, on, uh, on some of the issues that we've talked today? And, and feel free to ignore this question if, if there are other things that you'd like to uh, talk about in your final minute. Thank you. Um, first thing to say is that uh, this is not doom and gloom. I've been celebrating Indian elections and, and Indian democracy for many years, having studied it closely and actually called it sacred. People thought voting was a sacred right, but that's when elections were free and fair. And for uh, reasons that Christoph has outlined, they aren't any longer free and fair. Electoral bonds is one. The complete lack of secrecy in our ballots in India is another one. And third, Milan, what you just asked about, the Bihar elections are a very good uh, 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 confirmation of what you've just said. There's, there was a pandemic, there was a lockdown announced with four hours notice. The biggest sufferers were migrant laborers of whom the largest proportion come from Bihar. This wasn't an issue in elections. You would have thought that this would be a time when these kinds of issues are, are uh, politicians are held to account for having brought in a policy that so directly harmed so many lives, not an issue. China 
takes off a chunk of India. Soldiers originating from Bihar were killed in a gruesome hand-to-hand -hand combat. It doesn't come up an issue in Bihar elections just a few months later. So the idea that elections would be a report card, that the time where you would have to perform to show your performance, to ask for the mandate again, that sense of that celebratory elections as we knew uh, uh, and have seen work from time to time in India simply is absent. Um, I think there is also in, in this that why this doesn't happen is where are people going to have this debate and discussion? I was talking about democratic cultures. Now, democ democratic cultures is one crucial element of democratic cultures is you should be able to dissent. You should be able to question. If you're popular, you should be confident in your popularity to take unscripted questions because why should that uh, why should that in any way diminish your popularity if you let people ask you questions, whether in parliament or elsewhere? A UP journalist today has been jailed for a social media post for criticizing the prime minister. What, I mean, this, so where in public debate and discussion, if we talk about democracies as where you can uh, question, you can hold to account elected um, authorities, why is India's press freedom index now at 147 out of 180? What, what kind of democratic culture is this where uh, we are basic humanity, people fighting for civil rights, students expressing their dissent are beaten up by the police, thrown in jail, and an 80 plus year old priest in prison asks for a straw to drink water because he has Parkinson's and his hands shake so much and we can't provide a straw to a prisoner in that kind of condition, forget whether you agree with his politics or not. That basic humanity, what kind of standards do we hold ourselves to as Indians? That is um, uh, at uh, stake at the moment. Thank you. Christoph, we're almost towards the end, but let me just ask you a final question. You know, you have studied Indian politics more closely than uh, almost anyone. Uh, your point on the decline of institutions, could I put it more provocatively, which is that is it a return to the decline of institutions? In other words, you had a dominant party system in which independent institutions were weak. You then had an era of quite robust politics when institutions had more freedom. Are we simply just reverting back to the original mean? Uh, and perhaps that is where the equilibrium lies in India? Well, that would be the pessimistic conclusion, but maybe that's the right one. Certainly, we are back to what was the, the dominant politics in the late 60s, early 70s. And I would say, of course, still the emergency. Uh, because in at that time, you had a clear erosion of institutions. And I don't want to return to the list because each and every institution was under the same kind of pressure. The big difference is and that will uh, make me conclude by also uh, uh, saying how interesting the comparison with Israel is. The big difference is that behind this decline in, in institutions, there is an ideology. There is a plan. India is not only an illiberal democracy anymore. It's what Sami Smoa in Israel says, an ethnic democracy with a minority or minorities which are bound to become second-class citizens. They are de facto second-class citizens. And interestingly, the parallel goes further 
because all this is in the name of security. So we have the security state rational making ethnic democracy the only game in town. So it's much more important in the sense that it may be much more perennial to rebuild institutions after such a long period of transformation of the regime, of the rationale of the regime, and of course the transformation of the sociology of the institutions. Because appointments of judges, appointments of bureaucrats has completely changed. So if you if you suggest that we may we may surmount this phase, we may be back to the eight days of institutional robustness. I'm doubtful about that. I'm very doubtful. You know, I think there have been so many interesting strands of this discussion on the life and death of democracy. And for me, there are at least two or three major takeaways. The first is that uh, we all as democratic citizens must be incredibly vigilant because the old modes of undermining democracy, of tanks rolling through the street, of a dictator striking down constitutions is simply not really how democracies die anymore. Uh, they die in a process more akin to a death by a thousand cuts. Uh, it is the way in which judges are appointed, the way in which new laws are enacted, circumventing proper procedures. It's the way in which bureaucracies in the so-called deep state are, are undermined. And so in that sense, it, it, it makes the attacks on democracy from within even more insidious. I think the second big takeaway is that uh, elections have become the sine qua non uh, of, of representative governance around the world. Uh, even illiberal leaders and even most authoritarian leaders feel that they must hold on to some semblance of democratic practice in order to legitimize their own rule. However, uh, electoral contestation and participation uh, cannot be reduced uh, uh, to uh, a democracy. The two are not the same, that the liberal constitutional character of democracy, it is really what has made uh, the 20th century such a remarkable one uh, in, in, in many ways. Uh, uh, the final takeaway is that um, this is a contest which is very much underway, that much of the doom and gloom that we hear about democratic backsliding, democratic malaise, democratic misfortunes, um, takes away in some sense the agencies uh, that voters and individuals, citizens have. Uh, and we have seen time and time again, whether it was in India's post-emergency elections, when it, or whether it was in the United States election of 2020, that voters sometimes have the capability, the capacity to surprise, to upset, even illiberal leaders' best laid plans. So with that, let me thank you. This has been a fabulous discussion and thanks all of you for joining. <laughs>